the Lord will not fail. And that's just a beautiful thing to sing about. It's true, uh, especially when it comes to doing the impossible. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times today we, we have desires to go, yeah, man, we can do the impossible. You know, we have this confidence in ourselves. And it comes out in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it comes out just in the way, you know, mass marketing works. So there was a, a, a team at Lakeside Shopping Center, and, and because they're trying to get the attention of the shopping public, they decided that they were going to vow to do the impossible. And so as a part of a recent promotion, their research indicated that about 11% of parents had, you know, at least one kid where it was an impossible to buy for kid. You know, they just couldn't get the right gift. And so they took stock of those requests and they had a survey and that people, people submitted what they, you know, wanted to get for these impossible gifts. And, you know, things like a pencil that does my homework for me, you know. <laughs> And by the way, I'm looking at some students right now, and like, I know you want that. I know. If it only existed, right? That'd be great. Or, or how about this? A trampoline to the moon. Now, that sounds great at first. Then you start thinking about physics. Like, maybe not a great idea, you know, because you wouldn't survive that. But, but, but th- what they did is they actually had different experts come in. And so they, they had, you know, a child wanted to be a Lego figure. And so a certified Lego builder, Duncan T. Marsh, was at the ready. He was there to make that happen. Or confectioners at Smith and Sinclair had designed a, a whole bunch of Willy Wonka-esque candies that tasted like a holiday dinner. You know, you can kind of chew your way through. Ah, oh, there's the roast beef right there. Mm. Now, why that's appealing, I have no idea. But someone wanted that, and it was impossible. And so they did it. There was a seamstress, a Charlotte Den, and she created a dress that when you pulled the string, the wearer became a princess right away. And so there it was, instant princess. And so all these people were going, this is great. We've accomplished the impossible. And, and, the, and the marketing manager, Ben Leeson, said this, at Lakeside, you're going to find all your gifts, even the impossible ones. And that's how the campaign went. And you think about it, you're like, well, that's kind of impressive, I guess. You know, certainly it's, it's creative. There's a lot of innovative things happening with that. But when we think of Jesus coming, when we think of the incarnation, we realize something. God provides a gift truly on the level of that which is impossible. It can't happen. And he does so by, by promising Christ and bringing Christ to us. Uh, all the promises of, of the Old Testament fulfilled. He, uh, God uh, came and took to himself a human nature. He walked among us. He died for our sins. And in doing so, he met the deepest needs of our hearts, much deeper than any toy or gift campaign. And so this is the impossible that God accomplishes on an infinitely greater scale. And, and Mary is about to learn about that as she is visited personally by the angel Gabriel. And we find this in Luke Chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. And if you were with us last week, you might recall how Zacharias, the high priest, he was offering incense in the temple and he was visited by Gabriel who told him that him, that he and his elderly wife, Elizabeth, they were going to have a son named John. And he responded to Gabriel's message with, with essentially unbelief. He said, well, hey, people my age don't have kids. So give me a sign. How am I supposed to believe this? On what basis can I believe this? And so Gabriel responded by saying, okay, so you are of old age? Well, I am Gabriel, God's messenger, and you are not going to be able to speak until this baby is born. There's your sign. 
And so he walks out of the temple and he's like, you know, and people knew something happened. Eventually we'll find in the narrative, he started writing things down. Nice move, good, good move. But at, the, at first they weren't sure what was going on. But now Gabriel's sent to Galilee with another important message of an even more important birth. And so uh, if you would again just open to Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. In honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in this time you would take these words and that you would do what only you can do, that you would change us from the inside, that your spirit would take what he's penned here and he would divide within us the soul and spirit, the bone and marrow, the indivisible inner parts of us, that he would cause us to grow and that we would love you more, that we would love one another more, that we would be a light to uh, the dark world around us more out of love for them because of your grace towards us. So help us to to live out what we learn here today. Protect us from empty habit. Protect us from just going through the motions, from just kind of showing up at church and doing the thing and leaving, Lord. Instead, we ask that you would awaken our hearts towards you in this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name, our King. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So, as is often our practice, we want to recognize God gave us this passage in the form of a narrative. So the last thing I want to do is just sort of take some sort of outline and slap it on this thing and not just enjoy the narrative itself. God made it this way on purpose. So let's travel through the narrative. Let's enjoy it and and, and kind of learn some things through it. And then we're going to circle back and we'll uh, take some time to apply parts of it to our lives. Uh, But uh, but first we find out, here, here the Lord is, again, doing something amazing because we now travel from the temple itself to, of all places, Nazareth. And uh, Nazareth, it's basically an unknown town. You don't find it in any of the ancient literature prior to this. You don't find it referenced in rabbinic writings. It It is just off the beaten path. And so 
at the risk of offending anybody who might be from a small town here, it, it's, I mean, if you'd be like, you know, I'm from, I don't know, I'm making up a word now. I'm, I'm from armpit Idaho. Okay, whatever. I, mean, I don't know what it would be. You know what I mean? It's like, it's sort of like, I, it's not, it's, no one's trying to move there. No one's going there. It is not a main thing. And think about this. God is describing the birth and bringing about the birth of the king of kings, the Lord of lords. There was, a, there was a coronation of some guy this week. I don't know, some, is it England or something like that? Anyway, right, so that, what was that like? That was pomp, that was circumstance, right? There was like big time just gatherings and televised and the arrival of the king and the, I guess the crown is, I don't know, worth a lot, worth a lot of money. All those, that's how we do stuff. That's our kind of way we operate. God's the opposite. God doesn't do that. God isn't impressed with all of the stuff that impresses us. He loves doing it. He's the God of reversals. And he just takes everything that we think is normal, right, true, and he just goes, oh yeah? And he flips it upside down. And he does unexpected things. And so... We see this massive shift in the, in, the, in the narrative here. We go from temple, place of significance, to town on the outskirts of nowhere. We go from an, an elderly male who has a high status in the community, namely Zacharias, serving as a priest, to now a young female with no status at all. Uh, we, we, we have... Um, you know, human expectations of how the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is supposed to arrive and how he, in fact, arrives. And so these surprising developments are here to grab our attention and to show us God doesn't do things the way we do. We find this, this virgin. Her name is Mary. She's engaged. She's betrothed. So the, for them, a betrothal was more serious than an engagement. It was more binding in that time than our, our typical engagement would be. Um, if you wanted to break off a betrothal at that time, you had to go through a divorce. And yet, the marriage had not been consummated. So you were not living together as husband and wife. And so she's referred to as a virgin. You'll notice she's referred to as a virgin two times. So that's an emphasis. This one has never had sexual relations with a man. Ever. And that's important. Because this is what sets up the impossible thing that God's about to do. And, uh, and, and we also want to note this. This is a very distinctive Christian doctrine. There are no other faiths that make this claim. Yeah, you've got other, you know, some of the Greek mystery religions and stuff. They would have little g gods cohabitating with humans. But, but it's not a virgin birth, ever. It's always some sort of, you know, sexual encounter together that brings about those myths. Here, we have something totally different. It's unique. And a virgin birth is a truly unique event. Dare I say, an impossible event. And that's the whole point. So it's God's amazing carrying out of impossible things in obscure places. And I think that should give us great comfort. The angel, Gabriel, uh, he, he greets her in verse 28. And notice he says, favored one. Uh, that, that word is, is a word that includes the word charis in it. We've talked about that word before. It's grace. But this is, 
It says to bestow freely grace upon someone, and that's what's happened here. God is saying, I am bestowing grace on you. And then notice what else he says, the Lord is with you. Uh, that, that's an important phrase. It's not a wish. Some, that'll happen sometimes in some cultures, you know, hey, God be with you. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying the Lord is with you. You are not alone. And this is significant in a, in a lot of ways. One would be this. You might recall in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there's a prophecy about how a virgin will bear a child. What's the child to be called? God with us. The Lord is with you. This promise from Isaiah, given centuries before, is now coming to pass. And 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 this what God describes what the angel describes to her is, is really important. You're a favored one. You have been favored. You are in a blessed condition. Uh, the, the, the verb here is saying this is an ongoing thing for you. It's not going to happen to you in the past and it's done. It's not like it's going to happen in the future. It's, this thing has happened to you. You are blessed. You are favored. You are graced by God. And it's an ongoing thing. You can know it for sure, Mary. But not only that, it's a passive, meaning Mary didn't accomplish this. She didn't earn this blessedness. She didn't go out and get it. She didn't become the best her. You go be the best you and you can be blessed. That's not what happened to Mary. No, she received it. She was passive. I mean, tragically, uh, you know, there, there are many different errors that would come about from the, the Roman Catholic view of Mary. Uh, they, they, they convert her into someone who is sinless. Uh, we're clearly never taught that in Scripture at all. She's a person. Uh, there's um, ways in which she's almost venerated above Jesus. She's to be prayed to. Um, and, and, and if she herself were to hear some of those things, I'm sure she'd be shocked, horrified, dismayed, and would say, please don't do that. At the same time, I think for us as Protestants, we've reacted against that. And we said, we're not going to you know, put Mary on this pedestal next to Jesus. We're not going to claim that she's sinless. We're not going to do that stuff. We're not praying to her. And so she, forget it. We're just going to cast her to the side. Well, the text doesn't do that either. No, she is greatly blessed by God. Think of this. She's a young girl. She's 13, 15, we don't, you know, she's a young girl. And here she is being called on by God in this amazing way that's going to require a lot of courage. And you can see why he's promising to her right now this grace. Um, Because she's about to become the mother of the Son of God. She's going to need to know that God is with her. She's going to need to know that there is grace from him. She's going to have to know that because how how is she possibly going to defend herself or her baby? Look, she's an unmarried, betrothed virgin who's now going to be pregnant. What's that like for someone in the first century? That's hard. It's always hard, but it's especially hard then. Typically, if they're following through with, with the law, she, she could receive capital punishment for that. She can certainly be slandered for that. How is she going to protect her baby from, from murderous people who would be out to get him? No, in advance. Before Mary even has the whole scoop, before she even receives this truly earth-shattering, wonderful, joyous, and yet difficult news... 
She's already being assured. God's saying, I'm with you. God's saying, my grace is upon you. God said the same thing to Moses before he sent him into uh, Egypt to go before Pharaoh. Why? He needed courage. Know that I'm with you. In verse 29, we see, Mandy's, er, we see Mary, excuse me, we see Mary's response. And notice, she is not simply perplexed, she is very perplexed. How would you respond? Personally, I would just freak out that an angel showed up in the room. Okay, we have no indication he used the doorway. Doesn't really say either way, but it seems like, no, this is another one of those supernatural appearances. There's a lot to be perplexed about. But we also find she does something else. Notice verse 29, and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this is. That, that word really means to think on, to reason with. It has the idea of scrutinizing something carefully. So she's, she's a thoughtful person and she's thinking this through. How does this work? And, and the angel now is going to give her even more to ponder because this favor has led to an amazing blessing and so he says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. In verse 30, you'll notice he's reiterating that. God's grace is on you. Don't be afraid. And behold, look, see. Is literally what that means. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. Uh, wow. Again, put yourself in Mary's place. Huh? What? Amazing. But, huh? And he goes on to describe Jesus. And really, we find here in verses 32 and following, this is sort of the, the, the apex of this whole passage, this section. This is the climax, the description of, of what God is doing here. The Messiah is arriving. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. This one will be great. That, that, that description, this one will be great, is actually used of God himself in Deuteronomy 10. Same description. Um, John, we were told in the previous section, will be great before the Lord. This one will be great in and of himself. He will be called son of the most high. That's the next phrase. Most high, again, that's a description of God. And so this identity is actually equivalent to the Son of God earlier referenced there. And so this is not another a person being born. No, this, there is a divine element. This is, a, this is one who is, in fact, Son of the Most High. So he, he's not just another kind of person of greatness. No, he, this is a reference to his divinity. And then we find something else. Look at this at the end of verse 32. God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now it's all coming together. Everyone was waiting for the Davidic king to come. Everyone was waiting for the Messiah to come. The one who would arrive and, and, and remove evil and bring about a righteous, true reign. The king. They wanted him to be there. They suffered greatly in waiting for him. And so here it is. The promise that was given to David that someone would be on his throne. But then we find out something else that's even more amazing. Notice verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. His kingdom, his rule will go on and on and on and on into eternity. 
That is unlike any other kingdom or rule ever established in the history of all things. You know, at this time, who was ruling? It was Rome. You know, it was, it was uh, the various emperors. Who, who they, the emperors considered themselves to be gods. Some of them demanded people bow and worship them. Uh, Rome is not much of a threatening empire anymore, is it? These days, when you go to Rome, what are you looking for? You're looking for some wonderful Italian food and some really nice places to visit. It's a vacation spot. It is no longer a feared empire. One person put it this way. Back in that time, the names like Nero, it was a feared name. Now today, we name our kids Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and we name our, name our dogs Nero, you know? <laughs> it's just not, things have changed. And that's true of every human nation, government. This one's unique. He will reign forever. Jesus, born of a virgin, comes to rule over a forever kingdom on the throne of David. And there is only one forever kingdom, and it's his. And so this eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is described throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorite places is is the end of uh, Isaiah 55. Uh, God's talking there through the prophet and, and, and saying, essentially, you are thirsty, come to the water. If, you're, if, you, if you are hungry, come by actual bread. Meaning, listen to me. But then as that beautiful description goes on, I'm going to give you the faithful mercies I gave to David. Again, referencing the throne of David. The chapter concludes with this, for you will go out with joy, you will be led forth with peace. This is all anticipating this messianic kingdom. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And here's the kicker. And it will be a memorial to the Lord, an everlasting sign, which will not be cut off. That phrase is a direct reference to what would happen if an invading king came into a nation. They would typically erect a monument to themselves. And so you'd almost see it, maybe, you know, if if you've seen uh, Lord of the Rings, and if you haven't, I think you should, but whatever, don't don't take my word for it. But if you you do see it, you'll notice there's a time when when the fellowship is walking through um, an area that's been overtaken by orcs. And there are certain monuments that have been desecrated. They've been broken apart. There's like even forms of graffiti on it, marking over the the kings of old. That's what would happen in those times. And here he's saying, this kingdom is everlasting. And the memorial to the Lord of this everlasting kingdom is a sign. The the trees themselves shouting out with joy. The, The desert places being turned into places of prosperity. And, and provision and well-irrigated fields. All of this is a memorial to the Lord. It's an everlasting sign and it's never going to be cut off. Ever. And Mary's hearing all of this and she, again, what would you be like? Thrilled. Finally, the desire of our people is coming to pass. Finally, after all these centuries. Wait. 
I'm giving birth to him? So Mary asks a very logical question in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, please know this is much different from Zacharias's question in the previous section. Um, in other words, she's, she's not saying, oh, on what basis should I believe this? That's what he was saying. The phrase there that, that he uttered is, was on the foundation of what? She is simply saying, how is this possible? I'm a virgin. She's not asking for a sign. She's not saying, prove it to me. She's legitimately just saying, I don't understand. And notice the response is totally different. Because the truth is this, her virginity presents an obstacle to, to being able to have a baby. It's not possible. And yet, this is the opportunity that God uses to show something. He is the God that accomplishes the impossible by overriding it and working through it at the same time. So we find that this pronouncement shows the superiority of Jesus to John the Baptist as well. Yes, God did a, an amazing thing, a miraculous thing even, in, in, in allowing Elizabeth to have a child, in opening her womb. But here, this is beyond extraordinary. This is beyond the ability to even comprehend that God would bring about this birth in this way. So Gabriel responds, and he describes it for her. Uh, most of the time when we've re- I've read this repeatedly now, I'm, I, you know, he does not give us all the details. We're not told exactly how it works. There's mystery here. He simply tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for this reason the child will be called the Son of God. And so he's saying, God himself is going to accomplish this. There's going to be mystery involved um, there's, there is a way in which, um, even as, in, in terms of the, the temple tabernacle, the, uh, that same phrase is used. When God was present, he, would, he was, um, in a sense, he was over the temple. So there might be an allusion to that somehow. But we don't, we're not told how this beautiful mystery works. We just know that the Holy Spirit is the one doing it. And he accomplishes this. And, um, and again, Jesus exceeds any previous understanding of, of what this, who this Messiah would be. Um, now, certainly, it was prophesied in Isaiah 7 and other places. So the, they should have been waiting for that. They should have seen that. And yet, they had other ideas for what the Messiah is going to be, what, what the Messiah was to accomplish. Uh, they wanted political results, and they wanted political results now. Um, very similar, perhaps, to our time. <laughs> and we'll touch on that. But, but I do believe that here... In this moment, uh, Mary is understanding, wait a minute, this Messiah, he's not only uh, divinely anointed as Messiah, certainly he is, but here we find he's also divinely conceived. Wow. So the angel then goes on and Gabriel talks about Elizabeth in verse 36 and says, hey, you know, um, there's a, a lot of times there are traditional um, kind of uh, obstacles to babies being born, to conception. And your, your cousin Elizabeth, 
God's already been at work in, in, in opening up her womb, and they're, they're having a baby. And, uh, and then this beautiful statement, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. There it is. Nothing's impossible for God. That, that, that term there, uh, possible, dunamis, is the Greek term. It means being able to do. And impossible, you take a little alpha, you put it in the front, it means not possible. So it's kind of like, think of the word able and take an anti-sign and go, not able. And he's saying there's nothing that's like that for God. God can accomplish all that he desires without any hindrance because he is almighty. He is sovereign. And uh, it's interesting because this phrase is going to come up again later. In chapter 18, there's going to be a discussion between Jesus and his disciples And he's going to describe how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're thinking about it. They're going, oh, no. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. That's how salvation comes for all of us. And so now Mary hears about this miracle that's about to take place in her. And she realizes... This actually goes back, way back, to the promises from the prophets and even farther back in connection with the promises to Abraham and Sarah. So how does she respond in verse 38? Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. The bond slave is to be a willing slave of, of someone, to submit to them, to follow them. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed. So there's a question for us. Do we really trust in the God of the impossible? Do we? Are we in that place like Mary? Is our faith like that? We can, we can learn so much from her. But the contrast here is between Zacharias and his response and Mary's response. And here in this portion of the narration, Luke's going, which are you? I don't know, God, prove it to me. So show me what basis and then I'll, then I'll trust. Or Mary responding with, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm following you. I'm trusting you. And so if we really do trust in the God of the impossible, we're going to live out in certain ways, a certain kind of faith. And the first thing would be this. We're going to live out a startled faith. What I mean by that is the surprise. There's a surprise here. Mary's not just walking along with her life and God's just kind of doing everything according to her plan. Mary's not going along and, you know, saying, yeah, I've got these little boxes that God fits in. He just kind of fills the box. My life goes on the way I want it to. This was not, in Mary's mind, the evening the angel appeared. At all. She was about to get married. She was betrothed to a righteous man, we find other places in Scripture. And... Uh, and so, you know, are, are we surprised by God? Are, are you still in that place? Um, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you're sort of like, yeah, whatever. I go through, I, you know, I read the Bible. I do things. I, I. But there's not really a vibrant relationship between you and him. And I, I think when we're surprised by God, we, we get surprised by certain things. First of all, his promises. I mean, how many times have you heard this account? If you've been a Christian for a while, how many times have you come to Christmas and gone, here we go again? Birth of Jesus. 
I'll be honest. How many times have I preached through this for Christmas? But it's not, hey, Christmas in the spring, folks. Here we are. But how many times have I preached through this? A lot. I'm going, Lord, help me. Because you know what can happen? We can become so familiar with this that it kind of becomes like a, oh, yeah, heard that. It's almost like our Christian life and our excitement about it depends on this. We need to hear something new. If that's our mindset, that should disturb us. Because you know who that sounds a lot like? Yeah. Pharisees, Sadducees. Oh, and also the first century Greek culture, Corinth. Give me something new. Oh, he didn't have anything new to say today. Oh, Well, here's the thing. Um, How are you ever going to outdo what God has promised and done already? What thing new could be better than God himself coming down to rescue sinners like you and me? What could be better than the fulfillment of the promise that this Messiah who comes down is going to rule from the throne of David over a forever kingdom. Go ahead. Try to outdo that in your mind. I'll give you like one minute. Go. Top it. All right, I won't even get that long. You can't. You can't top that. There's nothing better. But also I think in a vibrant faith walk with God, there's going to be times when we're surprised. How often are you surprised as you read the Bible? How often are you in there going, wait a minute, huh? And I would submit to you, if you're not, if you're just kind of, again, going through the motions and reading along, and yeah, 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 you heard that before, I don't think you're really engaging. Because God the Holy Spirit has a way of taking what he's written here to change us. He does stuff. I can't tell you how many times. I'll walk out of here. I'll be out there on the patio. And someone will go, hey, pastor, so uh, what's with your meddling with me this week? Are you at my house this week? What's going on? And I'm going, eh, not me. I have no idea. But I can tell you this, the Holy Spirit, this is the creative product of the Holy Spirit. He has a way of taking this and dealing with us. Are you surprised? Is God giving you fresh eyes Daily. To spend time with him in prayer, to spend time with him in the word, to be changed. Here's another way I think we are surprised when we really stop to consider how God does work in, in counterintuitive ways to us. We talked about that, you know, temple complex now to unknown out in the remote Nowheresville city or town. By the way, town's probably a large word for it. <laughs> but, you know, this. Place off the beaten path. That surprises us. And yet, look at all the other ways God does things that are surprising, even, even paradoxically, right? So the first is last. You want to be first? He says, then be last. Uh, you, you want to lead others? Great, serve them. He washes the disciples' feet. You, you realize how awkward that moment must have been for them? Here they are, and he uses the terminology from Daniel 7 as he's washing their feet, which is, again, this messianic king. And he goes, hey, if I, the ruler, the king, the, the, come, the one who's coming to, to bring all things into a place of rightness and truth and goodness globally, if I'm washing your feet right now, what should you be doing with each other? 
How do you lead? Serve. How about this one? When you die to yourself, then you find life. Huh? Yeah. If he who seeks to keep his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. Huh? Or Jesus will say things like this, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. What's he talking about? He's talking about mourning over sin. He's saying the best way, the only way to come to me To know what it means to be a kingdom citizen is to actually be convicted of your sin and mourn over it. And then, then, you can know what happiness is as you turn to me and as you find forgiveness for that. So, if we really trust in the God of the impossible, we're going to live out a startled faith. But secondly, we're also going to live out a thinking faith. Look at what Mary does in the second portion of verse 29. She thinks, she reasons, she's, she's thoughtful. She considers. It's almost the idea of comparing things together within her own mind. And, and we're called to do the same thing. We're called to be thinking, we're, we're called to be discerning. Um, I don't know, folks, maybe for you, it's, it's this. For every time you engage in any form of news, and by the way, I use that term very loosely, but okay, Maybe you need to have five times in your Bible. All right? Five times read your Bible, one time you touch the news. And by the way, I do think the, the statement does apply in many different places. Context for that is if you're going to dine with the devil, use a long spoon. Okay? So go in. But please, are we being discerning? Just because someone says something on Twitter doesn't mean it's true. You know, and I think I've said this before. People don't warm themselves by a dumpster fire. They don't. You walk away. Um, we need to be discerning. Uh, we spent a lot of time on spiritual gifts, you know, se- several months ago now. But what's the one thing Paul calls us to there is learn to discern. Remember who the gifts are from? God. Remember what the gifts are for? Building up one another. I find it very fascinating that I do think we need to be discerning, especially in this area here of what Mary is promised. Yes, look at verse 32. He's going to be great, called the Son of the Most High. And God's going to give him what? The throne of David. So this promised one is coming, and he's ruling over a forever kingdom. We need to be discerning about that. We need to be discerning about the very same things that Mary had to discern in this portion of the passage. And, and that certainly would touch on several issues today, uh, especially an issue that's, that's come up in recent months. And, and I'm, I'm thinking right now of this idea of Christian nationalism. It's gaining steam. It's getting popular. You know? and, and by the way, many people define it in different ways. But essentially, those who are kind of talking about it the most are, are saying there needs to be some kind of distinctively Christian civil order. Christians need to rise up and take dominion. And we need to have all of our laws based upon the, 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 the dictates of, of, of what we would call Christian orthodoxy and then run that through politically. And, and I, I want to say, so, look, if, if, if we're saying things like this, be involved in the public sphere, amen, I'm with you. And if we're saying things like we should build a nation that upholds values that are consistent with God's natural law, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. 
If we, if we vote in, in such a way that reflects our values as believers, let's do that. But, but here's the thing. That's not what, what these folks are touting. This is different. And, and more could be said, but just, again, this is what Mary was promised. Jesus, the promised one, will come and rule over a forever kingdom. Folks, that is not the United States of America. Let's be wise. But let's realize that, that, that Christian nationalism, I really think, and I empathize, please know, I deeply empathize with those who are bringing this forward. I think they are sick and tired of losing the battle in, in, the, in the public sphere. I get that, culturally and other ways. But I think, again, if we, if we like Mary, think about this. Think about what's being promised here. Let's, let's, let's work this through just really briefly. First of all, uh, I would reject Christian nationalism for some theological reasons. The first being this, Pentecost. The church was born. What happened? People spoke in languages, multiple languages they had never learned. Why? Because there were people being drawn together from various ethnic groups and nationalities together into this new thing called the church. It's a multinational movement from the get-go, a multinational entity. Um, By the way, what's the result of that that we see in in Revelation 5? What does it say? Uh, You were slain, talking to the Lord Jesus, praising him, and you purchased for God with your own blood people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And so right, right away, I wouldn't want to take Revelation 5 and put an ism after the word nation there. I mean, if I take another word from Revelation 5 and put an ism, there's the word tribe, I get tribalism. Are we, gonna put, are we in favor of that? No. So when you put an ism on the end of something, you've got to be careful. Uh, our mission is to bring the good news of the gospel of Christ the King of the forever kingdom. And we're to bring that forward to people of all nations. And so uh, that's important. Secondly, it would be a a historical reason. The reality is this. Constantine, he had a nationalism that was Christian. (laughs) He he did it in 325, so the Council of Nicaea. So actually, 313 was when the Edict of Toleration was passed. So that's when people stopped killing Christians. Probably from about 303 to about 313 or so, that was probably the worst persecution ever in in the empire. But the Edict of Toleration came in 313, Council of Nicaea in 325. And at at first, yeah, it's a blessing. In many ways, we enjoy some of those same freedoms in in our country. You know, there's a a freedom to worship God as we would see fit. But long term, it didn't go well. Think of, of the medieval Christendom. What was that like? When you had this blending, you had certain states that were of different faiths and they were all combined. And, and what happened was it, was it was a bad deal. Matter of fact, look at the Netherlands today. There's still a church-state thing going on there. And uh, I don't want to offend my dear brother Aaron Tenpass, his home country, but it's a disaster right now morally. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, think of the Bible Belt. Same idea there, right? We have, you know, again, it's it's cultural Christianity. And those who are espousing this are saying things like that. Like, hey, you know what? Cultural Christianity is fine. We just got to get the laws changed, get this changed. Nominal Christianity is okay. And it's like, whoa. That's not our mission. And so like Mary, let's ponder about this Jesus who will reign over a kingdom that will have no end. The only one, the only forever kingdom. And may our hope and joy and focus 
rest there. And may our efforts rest there. And let's not fall for the, for the mission drift of, of Christian nationalism. Uh, let's certainly use everything we can in the public square to, to uphold and bring forward laws that reflect God's law. And let's live our lives in that place, honoring Jesus, who's returning soon. But let's not fall for the distortion of our purpose as a church. Let's be careful with that. So, if we're going to really trust in the God of the impossible, we're going to live a startled faith, a thinking faith, and lastly, a courageous faith. And that's, that's what, what Mary did. Look at her. Behold, a bond slave of the Lord may be done according to your word. I, I, I think if it was me, I'd be like, pause one second. <laughs> huh? Let's talk about this more. She's great. What, what courage? What trust in God? And again, we don't venerate her to the point of putting her on the, on the same level as Jesus. We certainly wouldn't pray for her. We don't claim that she's sinless. None of that. But let's admire her courage, her trust in the Lord. And, and, and certainly she's been told repeatedly that God is giving her grace. And she's been told repeatedly that he is with her. And so she doesn't have to defend herself against slander. She doesn't have to even protect her baby from murderous hands. God's going to do that. And so even before it all happens, she trusts him. And that's the question for us. Do we trust in these same promises today? The offer of salvation is to all who will turn to Jesus. And uh, certainly, when the disciples asked, how is it possible, if, if, if it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, how is it possible for anyone to be saved? And what does Jesus say? The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And so we don't need a little help. We don't need a, a, a life coach for self-improvement. Our need is so desperate, we actually need a savior because we are sinners. And there is good news for those of us who are sinners. And we need to turn to Christ in that. In uh, December of 2016, there was a ride at Knott's Berry Farm that became stuck about 140 feet in the air. And there were, there were 20 people on board, including seven kids. And so firefighters had to, had to reach the, the stranded passengers by using this massive ladder. But it was too short. And so the, the fire crews, they didn't have a choice. They'd have to lower each passenger 148 feet to the ground, harnessed by a single rope. And so Fire Captain Larry Kurtz said this. He goes, it sounds scary, but we have very strong ropes that have 9,000 pounds of breaking strength in them. And so what he did is that by saying that, he was, he's trying to build the faith of those who were trapped. He was giving them information that if they believed, that would dissipate their fears. But it was up to them to believe what he said and place their trust in the firefighter in that moment. And so maybe, maybe think for a moment of zeroing on one of the youngsters. Let's just say his name is Luke. So he's seven years old. He's old enough to feel the terror as he looks at the ground 148 feet below. The firefighter looks Luke in the eyes and essentially says this, trust me, I will not let you go. Your life is precious to me. And so Luke and, and all 20 passengers, we find out they were all lowered safely to the ground by 10.20 p.m. that night. Praise God. But here's the thing. Jesus' name means the Lord saves. And 
He will save you from your sins. You can turn to him. You can trust in him. You can be rescued from the eternal consequences of your sin that are coming. And you can know new life in him today. And Jesus looks you in the eye and he says, trust me. I've got you. And you can come to safety through him even now. So turn to him. Find new life in him today. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that, again, you would use our time together in your word to grow, to help us to grow, to draw near to you. Lord, please cause us to become a people who um, live with faith in you, the God who accomplishes the impossible. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.